Well, good morning. How are you all doing? Excellent. So this, this morning, we're going to be continuing on and just talking about living in light of the resurrection. And that is just such an exciting, powerful thing that we as believers live our lives um, thinking about what Jesus accomplished when He died and rose again and provided salvation. And I was thinking about um, how serious life is. You've, uh, I don't know if you've ever heard somebody say that uh, life is not a practice run. You know, this is the life that we get to live. And I was just really thinking about the seriousness of that and really um, being a believer and understanding the resurrection of Christ provides incredible joy. But the other thing that it does is it gives us a, health, a healthy sense of fear and reverence for how significant and how important life is. A friend of mine is a pastor in this area, and on August 5th, he posted about a funeral that he was going to be doing, and it was of a gentleman, a young man who was married. He had a wife and two kids, and this is, this is, what, he, this is what he posted. Uh, he said this, he said, uh, please pray um, for this gentleman's m- m- memorial service today at 10 a.m. So on uh, August 5th, he was doing a memorial service. He said, he attended our church for years, and we became friends, but on Sunday, July 23rd, he overdosed and died. He leaves behind his wife and his two young children. This is a sobering warning of what happens when you know Jesus is the way, but you continue to live in sin instead. Please pray for us at this service today as it will be heavy there will be a pray that there will be a godly sense of fear if you know someone who knows the one way of jesus but has turned back to the old way of sin please pray for them please reach out to them if you can you can know that the wages of sin is death but it still hurts when it happens You know, um, we all know people who have been raised in church, and and there are people who sit in church. This gentleman was sitting in church on a regular basis, and um, sin grabbed a hold of him. He went back to his old way of living, and it took his life. And uh, many of us are those who know people who have raised, been grown up in church and who live their life according to their own way. And, and it's easy to look at things like a drug overdose and say, oh man, that's terrible and that's a really bad thing. But you know, there are many people who are not involved in drugs and who may, may not be involved in those sinful things um, from that perspective, but who are living their life apart from God's will, who are, who are not living wholeheartedly committed lives for the Lord. And uh, for those of us sitting in this room, uh, many of us can think about the fact that though we know the truth, though we know the gospel, we don't live it out. It doesn't dominate and occupy our lives. And so this morning, we're going to be thinking about the seriousness of living in light of the resurrection. Uh, We're also going to see some things in this passage, a description of sin, what it is like, where it comes from. And, And when we understand sin... Um, I could see some people going, man, how could that happen to a person who uh, is going to church every week, who's hearing the truth? How could they fall back into something so foolish? And as a young man, leave, leave like two little kids to grow up without a dad. Leave, leave a wife to take care of two little kids without them. How can that happen? And it's easy for us to watch the news and to see things and to just be bewildered, how can this be happening? I got a call a couple weeks ago from a friend of mine who is a pastor, and um, he found out in the news that a, a fellow pastor that he had worked with for 10 years, so he worked with him for 10 years, but about 35 years prior, as a pastor, this man um, killed a little girl that was on on her way to a, to a uh, VBS that he was in charge of. And so he killed this girl, and he hid that, and he got away with it for years, like over 30 years. 
And this friend of mine worked in a church with this pastor. And, and when that news came out, uh, there were news cameras in front of his house wanting to interview him about this pastor that he had worked with for 10 years that had committed this terrible crime. Uh, there, there were news um, cameras out in front of my friend's church that he goes to. And, and can you just imagine the way the world looks at something like that? And, and how would you like it if, if your church building was the backdrop of a news story like that? And, and we can look at things like that, and we can just think to ourselves, how does that happen? And um, when we really understand what the Bible says about sin, it's not that confusing. And one of the things that is as bewildering and as traumatizing as these kinds of things are, when we read the Bible, the Bible from the beginning to end explains how the world is that way why those kinds of things happen, how we should think about those things. I think about all the stories in the Old Testament about people in positions of spiritual leadership who abuse their position and how God feels about that and what happens about that. You read stories about that, 1 Samuel chapter 2. I love the fact that, that when you read the Bible, it really puts all of life in context. And, it's, and sometimes it can be easy for us to hear stories like that and, and to think about those other things out there when we need to remember that these kinds of things are not just about other people and about somebody else somewhere else. These things are about us. They're about the people that we know and love. And while there's tremendous joy in understanding the gospel, that also brings with it a healthy reverence and fear for God and an urgency about what's coming in the future. And uh, so let me just open up God's Word here and let's, let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and then we're going to read this. And the first thing, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4, um, uh, Justin preached on this a couple weeks ago. And it just lays out the fact that the resurrection is a primary element of the gospel. It's the good news that we preach. It's what we receive. It's what we stand in. And it's what saves us unless we believe in vain. When my friend, when I heard that the news broke about this pastor that he had worked with for 10 years, um, I, I just think to myself, I remember the pastor's conferences that I've gone to and, and heard the announcement of good news that somebody at that pastor's conference has come to know the Lord and committed their life to Christ. And that's a wonderful thing to celebrate. But then you also think, okay, so that means that, that this pastor just became a Christian at this pastor's conference, which means he's been leading a church and he didn't know the Lord. And you just think about what kind of clues could there have been? And, and, and how do you come back to your church and say, hey, I got saved this week when you've been preaching to them over and over. And we need to recognize that going to church and being religious does not make a person a Christian. And so this is the truth. It's this thing that we stand in, and the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians, unless you believed in vain. And there are a lot of people who, uh, while they're associated with religion, they don't genuinely know the Lord. i in my conversation with my friends, it was devastating to him and his kids and his family that something like this could have happened. And, and just as you think about that, you just you wonder, could a person do that and be a Christian, actually know the Lord and hide it all those years? I don't, I don't think so. I don't think you can have just a dead conscience in that way. And we understand in this that the gospel is the most important thing and this is the gospel that Jesus Christ died for our sins. We are sinful, and Jesus came. He took on humanity. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross to pay the price for our sins. And um, my friend was just sharing to me, uh, somebody in his family was just saying, you know, it's like I, when I think about what this, this monster did, um, I just, in my heart, I pray that God won't forgive him and that he will spend for, forever separated from God. And I think about, you know, Eli's sons in 1 Samuel. 
It talks about how these priests abused their position of leadership. And as they were abusing it, their dad went to them and confronted him. them. Eli went to them. And he said, um, sons, what are you doing? And so he confronts their sin. And then this verse, God says that they did not repent because God desired to put them to death. As God looked at their sin, their abusiveness, and decided, you're not going to repent because I'm going to kill you for what you've done. And um, that's a sobering reality. You think about people who have opportunity after opportunity after opportunity, and potentially God's judgment for them is to say, um, I'm going to harden your heart, and you're not going to repent, and there will be no forgiveness. Um, but the good, you want to know what the good news to that is? The good news is it says they didn't repent because God decided to put them to death. But here's the good news. If they would have repented, God would have forgiven them. And when we think about uh, that, th- those evil, wicked people, I think about this gentleman that just committed this unthinkable crime. I think about this dad who, after knowing the truth, walked into just a sinful uh, way of living and God ended his life through a drug overdose. And the thing that I'm reminded of is that Hitler, the worst people that we could think of in the world, if they repent, God will forgive them. And this is my encouragement for all of us. No matter what you've done, no matter how bad things are in your life, uh, the people that you know that are evil and that their lives are dominated by sin, here's the good news. If they repent, they will be forgiven. Uh, Have you ever been in a position or have you ever known somebody who um, has just wondered, "I'm, I'm so bad, could I ever be forgiven? The good news is that there is no person living on the earth who's ever done anything that is too great for God to forgive. If a person has lived their whole life in hard-hearted rebellion against God, and in their last moment, if they repent, God will forgive them. And so Jesus came and He died uh, for our sins, and He was buried, and He was raised on the third day. And that was proof that God accepted His sacrifice, that His sacrifice was sufficient to forgive the sins of mankind. And so in verse 5 through 11 of 1 Corinthians 15, we see that the resurrection is a historical fact. It's the basis of the gospel. It is a historical fact. It is undeniable, the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. And while people want to deny it, it's not deniable. Justin did a great job of pointing that out. Last week, we learned the fact that it is not only a historical reality, it is also a theological necessity. As Christians, we're not people that just kind of uh, believe things that make us feel better so that we can have a better life. Uh, we, our faith is based on something that is true, that God has said that is true. And so our faith, our faith is based on truth. And if there is no resurrection, then Jesus has not been resurrected. And if he hasn't been resurrected, then preaching is in vain. Our faith is in vain. And our sins have not been forgiven. And then Paul, in verse 20, uh, gives the good news, right? And this is the good news. We'll think, we'll think about this. Um, it says this in verse 20, 1 Corinthians 15, 20, and read with me. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Jesus died. Jesus rose again. He was the first one to have that type of a resurrection. And that's how we know we'll be raised from the dead, because Jesus was. And then that helps us understand our sin. And we're going to be talking about sin this morning. Where does it come from? What's the nature of it? And uh, this is what it says here in verse 21. For as by a man came death. Who's that man? Okay, Adam. You guys are like theological experts here at this church. (laughs) You just say, by a man, you know who it is. 
As for by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And then that helps us understand what Jesus won. It says, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And so Jesus' resurrection overcomes actual death. Verse 27, For God has put all things in subjection under His feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that He is accepted who put all things in subjection under Him. When all things are subject to Him, then the Son Himself will also be subjected to Him who puts all things in subjection under Him that God may be all in all. And that's just saying that God is going to put everything in subjection under Christ. And then at the very end, Christ is going to subject Himself to the Father and give us the offering to God, all authority. And so that's just talking about an order relationship within the Trinity. That Jesus has all authority, except God the Father is not under Jesus. And after Jesus has all authority in everything, that He will submit Himself to the Heavenly Father. Now, all of that impacts the way you and I should live. This is what it says in verse 29. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame." Okay, so Paul is looking at the Corinthians and he's telling them that you need to live in light of the resurrection of Christ. And so he's gone over this truth. He's addressed false doctrine and false belief within the church. Some of you are saying there's no resurrection. So the church is full of people who don't believe things that you have to believe to be saved. And so he's confronting them about that. And then he gives the historical evidence and proof And then he goes on and he talks about the theological necessity. And then he's going to talk about what specifically was overcome by the resurrection of Jesus, which is Jesus overcoming sin that we've all inherited. And then he talks about the authority of Christ and how that should impact the way you and I live. Now, when you think about sin, it says here, for as by a man came death, And by a man has also come resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive. Two things I want us to see there. We're going to start by just talking about sin and Adam. And the first thing is that when Adam sinned, death came. One of the ways that you know that everybody has inherited sin from Adam is the fact that people die. Death is proof that sin came into the world. And every person who dies proves that we have inherited sin from Adam. And that's the death that has spread to everybody. Now, when you think about what sin is, God created the world and every human being is obligated to live their life for God's glory and pleasure. Colossians tells us that Jesus created the world. In fact, it says that by Jesus the world was created and for Jesus the world was created. So this is what you and I need to understand is that you and I were made for Jesus. That's like a foundational understanding of the purpose of life. Have you ever heard people that have been mad at God and they've said, God let this happen to me. How could that happen? 
See, there are some people that their perspective in life is that God was created for them. Um, I'm the pinnacle of the universe. I'm the one who's the most important. And God, you are obligated to make sure that my life is good, that I don't suffer, that everything works out according to my will and my pleasure and my desires. That's the place that the world is. Um, the desire to be at the pinnacle. And you know, it's interesting that there are a lot of churches and a lot of gospel messages, which are not really the gospel, that talk about how you're special. God didn't want to be alone, so He made you because you're so important. And people communicate that God made people because He had a need. Thing is, God has no needs. God didn't make us because He needed us. God created us for His pleasure, for His purpose. And so we were created for a purpose, and we were created purposefully by God. God is the center of the universe. We exist for Him. He doesn't exist for us. And that fundamental misunderstanding creates all kinds of problems in people's lives when they reverse the purpose of the universe. And so we're created for God. And, and I think sin, when you think about that, Satan wanted to be worshipped. He wanted to be in the place of God. And so the world and sin in the world is to get people to think about themselves in the place of God. And it's amazing that even in the church, uh, people have been plagued by the thinking that God exists for them. And that's a huge mistake. So let's just think about this sin that we inherited from Adam. You wonder what's so wrong with the world? It's sin. And you can see sin from the very beginning. Uh, kids are born in sin. Everybody talks about beautiful little innocent children. And yes, they're beautiful and they're innocent. And I had four of them. They're so cute and they're so lovable. But they're also very self-centered and selfish. And they want what they want. And you know, you don't have to teach kids to sin. Um, there's a lot of parents that are afraid they're going to mess their kids up. And I always try to encourage them, you don't have to mess your kids up. They're born that way. Um, they're all messed up. So if your kids have problems, it's not because you mess them up. And our goal as parents is not primarily to not mess our kids up. I mean, hey, we don't want to do that, right? We don't want to contribute to the problems they already have. But our goal as parents is to unmess up our kids. So just get out there and be aggressive and do the best you can to help your kids grow. Don't be afraid of messing them up. They come that way. And so words for sin. You know that one of the words for sin is just missing the mark? Um, when you think about this, that, that to be sinless would mean that you always do the right thing perfectly. And so um, it is sin to just miss the target. And I think about that with kids. It's like that's one of the things that we do as parents when we get kids. The first thing that we try to do is we try to help them be who they're supposed to be. Uh, we, we raise our kids to, to do the right things in the right situations. And, and we're teaching our kids when they're playing with toys, don't be selfish, share. Don't just think about yourself, think about others. And we, start, we, don't do, we don't start teaching kids that when they're 9, 10, 11, or 12. We start teaching kids that when they're very small. You need to think about others. Um, often when a kid walks in and there's like a group of people, we teach kids to look at people in the eye and say hello and to be respectful. I remember I had a niece that when I came to the church, for some reason, she felt really insecure. Actually, she wasn't my niece yet. It was Michelle's sister's kid. And it was when Michelle and I, I, I didn't even know if we were dating yet, but, but her little, her little uh, niece wouldn't say hi to me because uh, she kind of felt embarrassed and intimidated and just wouldn't say hi. And so her mom would bring her up to me every single Sunday at church and say, and she was working on her for every week to get her to look me in the eye and say hello. It's like we're teaching our kids to do the things that they're supposed to do. And we start that from the time they're very young. And sin is failing to do the right thing. It's missing the mark. Um, it's not knowing what is right. The Bible talks about sin as um, ignorance. 
that people, because of the hardness of their heart, are ignorant. So when a person lives their life not knowing what the right thing is, that's sin. Doing the wrong thing, that's when you know what's right and you don't do what's right. That's sin. It's wandering or straying. You know, God has a path, and if we're just kind of not paying attention and we get off track, that's sin. It's rebelling against God's authority. I will not be told what to do. God, you say to do this, I won't do it. You know, it's amazing uh, the way people will take that rebellion and they actually (laughs) misapply that in parenting. Some of the absolute worst parenting things I have ever heard, and I've said this before when I was young, and I'm sure you've said it before, and so, but I will just say, if you ever say this, you should stop saying it, and it's the worst possible parenting advice you could ever give. Have you ever heard somebody say, don't tell teenagers not to do things, it will only make them want to do it more? Have you ever heard that? That is the most unbiblical, ridiculous, statement that any person could make. Well, what does the Bible say in Ephesians 6, 4? It says, raise your children in the discipline and admonition of the Lord. Does God parent like that where He never tells us anything because it'll only make us want to rebel? I mean, the whole Bible is full of God's grace and kindness and goodness and wisdom. And so if we tell our kids stuff, and it only makes them want to rebel more, then they have a deeper problem than whatever it is we're talking to them about that we also need to work on. And so we're born sinful. And we have inherited that from Adam. Um, This is going to be just kind of a quick thing. But um, you know Adam is a real person. You know, some people think that Adam is a a discussion that happens in the first few chapters of Genesis. And there's people that have these evolutionary perspectives of the world, and they think, oh, this concept of Adam is just a myth. He wasn't a real person. You know, Adam was a real person, and that doesn't just impact the opening chapters of Genesis. Adam is found throughout Scripture. And actually, the theology of salvation is based on the person of Adam. Adam is referred, in the Bible, referred to in the Bible 20 times uh, and by his name. Um, he is referred to by a name or a pronoun 161 times in 11 different chapters of the Bible, in eight different books of the Bible. And in, so the number one place Adam is referred to is in Genesis. Number two is Romans, and number three is 1 Corinthians. But Adam is referred to in all the books that are listed there. 1 Timothy twice, um, Romans 11 times, 1 Corinthians six times, 1 Chronicles, Hosea, Luke, and Acts once. Adam's referred to all over the Bible. And if I go through Genesis next, which I might, we'll dig into this concept of Adam. But I just want you to know Adam was a real person. Uh, let's look at what the Bible says about Adam and sin and how we got it. If you have your Bibles, go to Romans chapter 5, verse 6 through 19. I just want to read this. This is the gospel. It's our understanding of the world and how the world ended up the way it is. When you look in the mirror and you wonder why you are the way you are, um, this will help answer some questions. And this is the great news because Christ came to solve our sin problem. It says in verse 6, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know, this is so comforting when you think about yourself and when you think about other people and sometimes we feel bad or people we know may feel bad or like they're bad people. And I had this friend that I would invite to church and he would just say, yeah, I would never come to church. Trust me, you don't want me in church. If I walked into church, lightning would strike me. He just felt like a bad person. And I used to tell him, um, hey, (laughs) God's not just in church on Sunday morning. God's everywhere. So church is not more dangerous for you than anywhere you go. 
But here's the good news, is that if you feel terrible, if you feel like a bad person, if you feel guilty, that's just accurate thinking, but that's good news because Jesus died for people who were sinners. We don't clean ourselves up. We don't try to make ourselves good enough. And if I could go to prison and talk to this man that committed this terrible, unthinkable crime, I would tell him that as a terrible of a sinner as you are and as much as you deserve separation from God, if you repent, God will forgive you. Jesus came to die for sinners. And then it says this in verse 9, Since therefore now we have been justified by His blood, much more will we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. You know, God's wrath is something that we should have in mind. Because it's something that's unthinkable, that is ultimately horrible. There's nothing in this life that you could possibly imagine that is as bad as God's wrath for all eternity. God's wrath is defined as a lake of fire. And I just think about the times I've burned my hand or burned my finger. It's the ultimate pain. And when God's talking about eternity of people who have rebelled against Him, He describes it as an eternal flame. And so this wrath of God is terrifying, and it is something that He came to save us from. So it goes on, and it just says that we shall be saved from the wrath of God in verse 9. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. Not only did Jesus pay the price for our sins, but when Jesus lived His life on this earth, He achieved righteousness for us. And so Jesus took care of your sin problem that separates you from God, that makes you deserve God's wrath, but you also need to be righteous. And the Bible tells us that we get the credit for the righteous life that Jesus lived. So He took care of both sides of your problems, all the things you did wrong, and also all the things that you didn't do right. That's what Jesus did. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. And now he's going to go back and he's going to talk about the sin of Adam. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So we all die, but here's the other thing. We also all sin. So not only have we inherited sin from Adam, which as we read this passage, we'll learn that just inheriting sin from Adam makes you worthy of condemnation. So you were born in a state of being under God's condemnation. But Jesus, and, and then we confirm that by our own sin, but Jesus came to reverse that. Verse 13 of Romans 5, For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin was not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift, verse 15, is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more having the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Verse 17, for if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Verse 18, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. So there's this contrast between what Adam messed up by his sin 
and what Jesus did through his life. You know, that started in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. As soon as Adam sins, you know, God promised Adam, in the day that you eat of this fruit, you will die. You want to know why there's sin and destruction and pain and sorrow and why we're broken inside? Have you ever noticed brokenness in yourself? where you're just not happy and you don't feel good about things in your life and you think wrongly about things. That's because we were born broken. And Jesus came to fix that. And that's what God said in Genesis 3.15. He says that I'm going to send a seed to reverse the curse of the fall. And so um, God's keeping His promise to Adam when He said the wages of sin is death. Every time you look around and see things that are wrong and broken, That's what God said would happen when we sin. And when Adam sinned, that brought the fall of all mankind. This is how uh, Paul describes your and my birth. It says this in Ephesians 2, 1 through 5, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. You want to know why wicked, terrible things happen in the world? It's because Satan is working through sinful people. You want to know why you live a life of sin? It's because Satan is working in your life to cause you to do wicked, terrible things. And you know how... Um, Satan promised Adam and Eve, if you disobey God, you'll feel better, you'll be happy, your life will be better. Remember how um, that's what he told them in the Garden of Eden? You know, Satan's telling that same lie to people today. If you sin, if you rebel against God, if you do the things he's told you not to do, your life will be better. And did Adam and Eve's sin make their life better? I mean, it didn't, right? (laughs) We can all say, you know, if you're a woman and you've ever had a baby and you've been feeling pain, you'd be thinking to yourself, thanks, Eve, and thanks, Adam. All the broken things in the world, it didn't make life better. And you want to know something? Sin didn't make their life better. And when you harden your heart and you rebel against God today, it's not going to make your life better either. And then it goes on in verse 3. And it says, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You know, that should get our attention. That is the amazing thing that God has saved us from. Verse 4, but God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. You know, it's God's grace, it's God's goodness that saves us. You know, sin's affected our world, it's affected every person we know. Sin's where you and I start out. And Jesus is actually the only solution to the world's sin problems and your sin problems and my sin problems. You know, when um, people have the idea that people are basically good, um, that would make the world a confusing place. And one of the reasons that we actually understand uh, the world, I'm not shocked when people in my life sin against me. That's no surprise. Like sometimes we're so shocked that people can do bad things. We're so shocked when a good friend betrays us. We're so shocked when sinful things happen. You know, that should never surprise us. If you're married and your spouse sins against you, you shouldn't be shocked and go to counseling and say, I cannot believe how my spouse talked to me. They did this thing. I'm so shocked and surprised. When your kids do things that they shouldn't do, why is that surprising? Oh, there's something seriously wrong with you. You're, you're disobeying. You're being rebellious. You're not obeying me. And sometimes we could just be shocked. And why is this happening? And I would just say, it's not confusing. We know why people do things wrong. We expect people to do things wrong. Have you ever looked at yourself and and just made a commitment of, I want to stop doing this thing. I remember as a new believer, I'm a Christian. I have the Holy Spirit in me. And I had spent my life practicing being in rebellion against my parents. 
And so whenever they would tell me to do things or just whatever, I would often yell at my parents. And so when I became a Christian, I had this really low bar for myself. And, and one of my low bar things was um, I need to stop yelling at my parents. And so I remember going home. Um, one day I was going home after work, and I'm just telling myself, don't yell at your parents. Don't yell at your parents. Don't yell at your parents. Like, I'm just telling myself, I'm just, I'm not going to do this anymore. And, and when I got home, I walked through the door, and I'm feeling like I'm going to do okay, and I'm praying, Lord, help me not to yell at my parents. And I have no idea what happened, but my mom <laughs> told me to do something. It really frustrated me. And within minutes, I was yelling at my mom. I just walked through the door. And I just, you know, when you see things in your life that you want to change, it's not this surprise, it's not a shock that we struggle with those things. So we shouldn't be surprised at our sin or at the sins of other people. And we should think about, like that's what the Bible says, right? Forgive others the way God has forgiven you. So we should expect failure toward us. We should expect ourselves to fail toward others. And what's the response when that happens? When people sin against us, we're not indignant. We look at other sinners and we just go, yeah, you're a sinner. You're fighting this battle with sin that you inherited from Adam. And while God has renewed you spiritually, you still have a sinful flesh that you live with. So when people sin against us, we're not shocked. We're not surprised. We forgive them. And we're reminded when we sin against other people, that's not a shock. It's not a surprise. You know, it's amazing to me how many people just have a hard time admitting their own sin. They have a hard time going, yeah, I'm a sinful person. They feel like they need to justify all the things that they do wrong. Uh, have you ever thought about how hard it is sometimes to say sorry? It shouldn't be. When you sin, you should just go, yeah, I'm a sinner. I sin. I, I think wrong things and I do wrong things. And that's why Jesus came to die for me. So it should be easy for us to confess our sins to others. That should not be this embarrassing, humiliating thing. That's just part of life because we inherited sin from Adam. When other people sin against us, it should not be this terrible thing that's so hard to forgive. We just look at other people and we go, yeah, you're a sinner just like me, and God's forgiven me, and I'm going to forgive you. And so forgiveness should be easy. We should understand that the, wor the world that we live in, and so here's the good news, is that um, when we think about this, we understand what Christ has done for us and the value of it. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake He made Him, that's Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, this next section, so we understand what Jesus has done for us, how valuable that is. Verse 23, um, this guides our understanding of the victory that Christ has won. But to each in his own order, Christ, this is uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 23, Christ the first fruits, then it is coming, those who belong to him. We're going to cover this next week, but Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. So Jesus was raised from the dead, and the first fruits means we're going to be just like Jesus in our resurrection. And so next week, we're going to talk about the timing of the resurrection. When do we get our resurrected bodies? What is our resurrected body going to be like? Like, what are the things Scripture tells us? Because it says, then at His coming, when Jesus comes back, those who belong to Christ... Then comes the end where He delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule, every authority, and power. For He must reign until He has put all His enemies under His feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. So here's the thing that we need to recognize. Jesus is the ultimate authority. He will rule. He will put every enemy under His feet. And so as we think about this, um, we should understand, like right now, we see a world that is in rebellion against God. They're shaking their fist in God's face. And that's God's common grace that He allows that to temporarily happen. 
And, you know, First Peter tells us about people who just say, oh, people have been promising that Jesus is coming back from the beginning of time, but everything just keeps going the way it has been going, and it is going to keep going. And I think about Eli's sons, these people in places of spiritual leadership that were stealing God's offerings as they conducted their temple ministry. They were sleeping with the women at the tent of meeting. So they're being sexually immoral in the, the, their performing of their duties. And, and these men were old men. And I just think about the fact that they had been living their life in rebellion against God. And they just felt like, I'm getting away with it. I mean, yeah, I've read all these things in the Bible that talk about the nature of God and His wrath and all those things, but hey, I'm sinning and I'm having a good day today. And then I'm going to have a good day tomorrow. And God's grace and mercy poured out upon them. They didn't realize what Romans 2 said. Um, Do you take lightly the kindness and the riches of God's mercy not knowing that His mercy is meant to bring us to repentance. But because of your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath. And and people misunderstand God's grace and mercy and kindness. And they think that means judgment day is not coming. They think that means it is okay to shake their fist in God's face. And the thing that I want all of us to understand is that Judgment Day is coming. And you can read the Bible. And from beginning to end, we see how day after day, people shook their fist in God's face and it seemed like everything was okay to them. But then all of a sudden, time was up. Remember something as simple as Noah's Ark? For 120 years, it says in Genesis, that Noah was preaching righteousness. You know, his family was the only righteous family on earth. It says that every thought and every intention of everybody's heart was evil continually. And for 120 years, Noah preached and he built a boat out in the middle of the land. And everybody thought he was crazy and nobody listened. And then Noah and his family get on the ark and God closes the door. And then he drowns everyone on earth. For 120 years, people felt like, hey, we shake our fist in God's face and we're evil and nothing happens to us. And all of a sudden they realized that God's mercy that was meant to bring them to repentance, because they hardened their heart, uh, they faced His wrath. And here's the worst thing. You know, I bet it was pretty scary to be climbing to the top of a mountain to try to get away from the flood, and then, then to see that water coming up and just that stormy water, and you're just seeing everybody drown, and, and you're just feeling like, oh my goodness, I, just, I have to survive, and you're fighting for your life as you try to get to the top of a mountain, and then you stand there, and the water just comes and takes you away. You know, I'll bet that was a terrifying moment as they saw their end coming. But you want to know something? Anything that happens in this life is nothing compared to what happens the moment a person leaves this life. And so for us, as we think about this incredible blessing, we think about the sin problem that Adam's sin created and and the rescue that God has provided through Jesus, you know, that should give us a sense of urgency. And this passage, we'll cover this next week, this passage ends with Paul talking about how he actually sacrificed everything about this life for the future. And this passage ends where Paul says, and people have no knowledge of Christ, I say this to your shame. And one of the things we should think about is that life is urgent and eternity is at stake. And we should take every moment that we have to live our life for the grace of God and to please God and to live righteously and to confess our sins. And we should spend every day 
reaching out to the people in our life that we know that have misunderstood God's mercy. They think that God's grace and God's mercy and God's kindness means they're going to get away with a rebellious life toward God. And we need to have in mind that Jesus provided salvation and that that offer of salvation is available in this life and that eternity is at stake. And I think about how often I think about this gentleman who um, died of a drug overdose, living his life disregarding the things he knew. And, And I just think about that carelessness, and I think about the carelessness of people who are more concerned with a positive relationship with a friend or a family member than they are about their eternal state. We should have an urgency to the gospel. The gospel's good news. But what makes that good news so good is that life without the gospel is such bad news. And so as we think about this, let's be people who wholeheartedly live for Christ, who embrace forgiving other people and receiving forgiveness, who understand sin and who understand the value of what Jesus did in dying on the cross. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for your kindness and your goodness. And Lord, we understand that ultimately you will be in authority and you will put everybody under your foot. And people today, they they live their life in rebellion against you, pursuing the lies of Satan, doing the things that that they think will make them happy when in reality... It's just separating them from you and from your will. God, give us a sense of urgency to reach the lost. God, I pray too that you would give us a sense of eternity as we live our life, that we would be willing to make any sacrifice to be pleasing to you because we realize that that this life is temporary. It is a vapor, and we will live for all eternity. And God, I thank you for your grace, your mercy, and your forgiveness And that we are never defined by our sin. When we fail, when we blow it, that is not a shock. That is not a surprise. That is actually why you died. And God, I thank you that we don't stand before you based on our goodness, on our righteousness. We stand based on your work. And so, Lord, thank you for your goodness and your kindness in your name. Amen.